1: In my new book, With Mark Tim, mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com.
2: Welcome to the Sharkpreneur podcast. Today, this is your co-host, Seth Green, as always. Today, I am having the good fortune to be joined by Blaine Bartlett from The Soul of Business. Full disclosure, I was just on Blaine's podcast and I said, oh my God, I'm so interested in what you're doing. I got to have you on my show. Blaine, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, Seth, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. I I loved our talk and I'm looking forward to just kind of continuing that.
2: That's right. Let's flip the mic. So tell everybody, how did you get started? You've been doing this a
1: long time. Oh, good Lord. We're going to go back uh, four decades on this one. I think probably the easiest way to describe that is I got real curious about why some businesses succeeded and some failed because they all seemed to have kind of the same starting point. Yeah, an idea that somebody wanted to take to market. And so that unbundled, as you can imagine, a real complex nest of uh, all kinds of things. Um, But it was, you know, the one thing that stood out for me was the toxicity that I experienced in most large organizations. And, And what I mean by that is, People would come to work, they'd hang their hat up metaphorically and wait, you know, wait around to be told what to do. And at the end of the day, when the whistle blew or whatever happened, they'd go home, they'd pick, you know, they'd pick their hat up and go out and they wouldn't have to be told what to do. They would just go out and you know, just do their life uh, without needing a boss. In the organizations themselves, that, that phenomena seemed to squish the life and the aliveness out of people, the creativity and everything. So I started just kind of playing around with that uh, observation and my career has actually been kind of built around bringing aliveness back into the workplace, uh, creativity, innovation, you know, those sorts of things by tapping into what I call the soul of business. Okay. So let's talk about that.
2: What did, so what do you do and who do you do it for?
1: Well, historically it's been large, you know, fortune 100 companies, uh, working with you know these these in, in you know very large uh, businesses that have incredibly sophisticated uh, processes and organizational structures and you know really broad you know literally global reach um, how do we actually uh, manifest and I'll use the word manifest here very very uh, specifically how do we manifest aliveness as we execute on you know hitting our targets uh, because a lot of these targets are meaningless to people. Um, they're not meaningless to the people that are in charge, but the folks that are out there doing the doing the job. I mean, a quarterly number means nothing to them. They want to have meaning in what it is that they're doing, and it's that meaning that uh, I kind of organize my my work around. How do you how do you uncover meaning? How do you let people you know, probably discover meaning in their work so that what they're doing gets them out of bed in the morning and Once they're out of bed, how then do they actually end up uh, collaborating and cooperating to make it happen? And that led me to, I mean, most of my work right now is in in, uh, and has been for about 35, 40 years in leadership development. And I've landed on a definition of leadership. It's co-creating coordinated movement. And that's two, you know, two elemental pieces, co-creation and then coordinated movement. So co-creation is an invitation to participate. Coordinated movement is about how do we do the dance? and their skills associated with both of those domains.
2: So Fortune 100 company, who usually, how do you get in the door? Who brings you in? And how do they know that they have a problem that, that they're looking for help with? How do they, you uh, say all how do they know their workers
1: are dead? Like, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, it, it begins to show up, well, I'll, I'll answer that question first, and then go back to how I get in there. Um, It it begins to show up. I mean, Gallup is a great uh, indicator on this. Gallup has done a survey for 20 plus, plus going on 30 years now, I think, on employee engagement. And historically, over that 20 plus year period, what their data shows is that 87%, give or take, and it kind of fluctuates about two or three percentage points, um, 87% of employees around the world are emotionally disengaged from the work that they're doing. They go through the motions They they put product out but in terms of you know, emotional investment and in terms of emotional engagement, it, they, they, it, it doesn't manifest itself. It doesn't show up. And managers and leaders are not dumb. They recognize that there is a productivity cost to that on one side, and there is a huge financial consequence to that as well. So when you ask the question, how do they know, they know through uh, some you know, bas- te- you know, simple metrics. You know, are, are we as profitable as we could be? Uh, incremental bumps in performance uh, are the rule of the day as opposed to breakthrough bumps in performance. And breakthroughs come when people are emotionally engaged. Breakthroughs come when uh, innovation is allowed to flourish, when people look at things with a fresh set of eyes and they go, oh yeah, here's something we could do. And management or leadership doesn't tamp it down because it's not the way we do things. So in that kind of a conversation, people are always looking, particularly leaders, they're always looking for ways to improve. And, you know, citing that same statistic, uh, 87%, you know, most organizations, and these are large organizations, you know, we'll spend on average of about $43 billion a year on leadership development with the intent of moving that 87% number. And they haven't been successful in doing it in 20 some odd years. The number has stayed pretty static. So that's kind of the, the gateway for me. That's the opportunity for me. And we're pretty good doing what we do. And, to, to, you know, the, the, the short answer to your question is I get invited in. Uh, we do not do much marketing at all. It's all word of mouth. Uh, some, you know, we're successful in one, you know, one area, and somebody recommends us into another area, and. Um, my my you know, literally 40-year career has been built on recommendation. Well, that's
2: absolutely incredible and speaks volumes to the happiness of the service that you provide for your clients. So you talked about the 87% number multiple times. So when you go work with a Fortune 100 company, do you have your own metrics? Do you have KPIs? Are you seeing how much are they redoing the survey and finding out that the people are now 87, fewer than 87% are disengaged? More of them are happy is that, how does that get measured?
1: That gets, uh, we, oftentimes if I can, I'll use internal uh, metrics that people have developed in their own organizations, because those KPIs are relevant to the organization's business. Absent that, we will bring in our own metric structure and it's you know, formalized surveys. You know, we'll, we'll do a baseline survey and then we'll come back you know, mid, mid-course and near the end of an engagement and take a look at what's happened. So, okay. uh, and, and in the, in the definition of what we're measuring is not something that we do. We end up doing that in collaboration with our client. What is it that is important to you? So if it's a leadership issue, what are the behavioral indicators that we're looking to affect? Um, and then what's the, what's the business implication if we were to achieve a shift in that behavior, you know, those sorts of things.
2: So dumb question, but I'd love to ask if we are disengaged, if our employees are disengaged and they work with you and they become a reinvigorated, re-engaged, re-alive with passion, does that show up in the bottom line? Is the soul of business profitable?
1: Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It shows up not in just the bottom line; it also shows up in the top line. Um, you know, very good friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Raj Sisodia, uh, wrote a book. That, you know, I love this title. It's called "Firms of Endearment." And Raj, uh, you may recognize his name. Uh, he and, and John Mackey, who was the co-founder of Whole Foods, wrote a book together that was called "Conscious Capitalism," and it became kind of the the Bible for the Conscious Capitalism Movement. Prior to writing that, he did write this book called Firms of Endearment. And in Firms of Endearment, he took a look at what are the value cores of these of some very select kinds of companies, those companies that valued caring, those companies that valued uh, what I'm referring to as the, the sole nature of a business, which has to do with relationship and connection. And it was an explicit part of their value core. And he compared the performance of these companies on very traditional business metrics to Jim Collins's good to great companies and the S and P index, and his firms of endearment outperformed. Um, I mean, it was it was multiples, uh, you know, tenfold multiples of both of these sets of companies, the other sets of companies. Doing business in this way is profitable. Doing business in this way is actually good business, and. Um, It's uh, not a traditional command and control structure. You You actually have to approach business with a different kind of mindset. My perspective on business is that the purpose of business is to enhance the experience of being alive on this planet. And if you are in fact enhancing the experience that people have of themselves being alive on this planet, your product or service is going to be a crackerjack seller. People are gonna absolutely flock to it because it does make them feel good. It's an emotional response and you'll end up making money. That's true on the, uh, on the delivery side. It's also true internally. If people feel good about themselves while they're working with you, Bob Chapman's a great example of this uh, in his uh, uh, firm, Um, when they were doing work uh, in in building um, um, uh, oh Barry Waymiller. Um, He would buy distressed companies. He built a multi-billion dollar company by buying distressed company and then taking care of the employees. Employees first. Are you valued? Do you feel safe here? Do you feel as if what you do makes a difference? And those sorts of questions make a difference, top line and bottom line. That is absolutely
2: fascinating. So how do we know if we've sold our soul of business? How do we know? Let's say we don't have a Gallup poll. We're not a Fortune 100 company. What are some warning signs that would lead us to know, hey, perhaps this is something we should look at?
1: I I love the way that you phrase that. How do we know that we sold our soul? Businesses sell their souls all the time. Uh, And it usually looks like this. We've got this big opportunity in front of us. The only thing that it's going to require of us is that we do something that violates our core values, uh, our core values. And the upside financially is, is huge. And that one little move is a very slippery slope. And once we've compromised our value core, it gets noticed. It gets noticed right away. And then you start breaking trust. You start violating that, that trust that people have with the leadership that is organized around who we are, not what we do, but who we are. And when that trust starts to disappear, you've got uh, a lot of recovery to do. And most organizations will not recover it over time. And that's what, you know, where we end up with life cycles, you know, beginning to get shorter and shorter and shorter on a lot of these companies.
2: And then on the flip side, how do we know we're doing it right? What are the differences that we'll see in our staff and our clients and our customers?
1: Well, I'll just speak for myself. Yeah, my, my average, you know, I'm a consultant. Uh, you know, we've got a consulting firm, you know, we build an organization that had footprint in uh, you know, four different countries around the world. Did work all over the world, still do work all over the world. My oldest client has been with me for 34 years. The average term of my client engagement is around 12 years. So, and I mentioned that because all an organization is, is a collection of people in relationship. And if the relationships are working well, you're gonna have a pretty pretty good shot at being successful long-term as a business. People have relationships obviously with each other, but they also have relationships with goals, objectives, the vision, the values of the organization. We have relationships with our desks, our chairs. The metric that I think we don't pay attention to that we should pay attention to is the quality of the relationship structures in the organization. And if the quality is starting to go south, that's where I want to start getting uh, in front of it. Um, and most leaders aren't, paid attention, you know, aren't paying attention to that. They're paying attention to numerical metrics. And um, yeah, that, that's we, we pay attention in business typically to what we're doing. Are we hitting our numbers? What are we doing? We don't pay attention to the how we're doing as an organization. How are we doing our relationships with each other? And that's, yeah, it, it sounds like an abstraction, but it really isn't. There is a concrete reality to the quality of relationships and it's linked to the quality of the performance in the organization.
2: Okay. So... With all the, I mean, the the fact that you have client engagements that last that long speaks volumes to how happy they are and how much they can measure it because it wouldn't be enough to be happy. The next regime change would kick you out. The fact that you're still around 12, 20, 30 years later means they can continue to show to the next generation of bean counters proof that it's working and that it's paying for itself in many, many multiples. With all the success you've achieved, what's your biggest challenge now?
1: Uh, right now, um, interestingly um, for me, you know, I've, I've gotten to a point in my life where I've started to actually shrink the footprint of the company. I want more time for some other things. And I lo- yeah, one of my grandkids asked me the other day, and this is a personal response to your question. Um, one of my grandkids asked me the other day when I was going to retire. And I, I, you know, the question kind of rocked me because I never even thought of it. I can't imagine not doing what I'm doing. What I can imagine is doing what I'm doing in a different way where I don't have to be on airplanes as much. I've got over half a million miles or not half a million. Yeah, no, I've I've got over 5 million miles. Yeah, I get the number right here, another zero there. I've got over 5 million miles in the air. And I mean, that's just crazy. Um, And it's, you know, obviously takes wear and tear on the body and all kinds of other stuff. And So long answer here to uh, the point that I wanna make here, relevance. And I think that that was, you know, it's, it's it's what's kept me in the game as long as I have. And it's the one that I need to look at again. How do I keep myself and what we're doing relevant? The good news is I've got clients that have been with me for, you know, two and three decades. The bad news is I've got clients that have been with me for two and three decades. Uh, there's you have new, to keep reinventing
2: yourself. You got, have to keep coming up with a new, fresh take on something.
1: Yeah. And it is kind of like that. Yeah. And, you yeah, know, I've got gray hair. Uh, yeah, how do, I, how do I position what I do? And, and it's, it's not that difficult, but it's, it's something I'm mindful of. How do I position what I'm doing here so that it doesn't come across as sounding uh, like 1950s uh, <laughs> uh, conversation? Uh, it has to be relevant in today's digital world. It has to be relevant in today's pace of change. It has to be relevant in terms of what people are paying attention to, which has to do in, in part, changing expectations and work-life balance um, you know, when I first started working back in the seventies, um, you know, work-life balance was something people talked about, but mostly people understood you're going to go to work. Now it's not that it's there's, you know, people are looking you know, at, different questions of what does balance really look like and what does relevance really look like for the work that I'm doing. And that, that translates to how, how do I actually keep myself relevant? So, you know, and part of that's also around the delivery mechanism, um, yeah, in-person work is one thing. It's highly, you know, a lot of the work I do is very touch intensive you know, in, in, in terms of you know, being in front of so people. How,
2: I mean, 5 million miles in the air. Now we're in recording this in the height of the, pan, the COVID pandemic. How yep. have you had to change service delivery? How has that affected you in terms of how you're delivering if you can't travel so much?
1: Yeah, that is, you know, and that's exactly what I'm working with. Yeah, how do I digitize you know, what I'm doing and not lose impact? And so the experimentation that's going on with that, I'm in conversations with a a number of folks about how we deliver content um, and actually how we engage groups, uh, not just individuals, individual coaching via Zoom, uh, as an example here, that's, that's, you you can pull that off fairly easily. Um, But when we start getting into group development work, uh, working with an executive team, how do I do that? And, yeah, Tony, you know Tony Robbins, you know he, he's got five and six thousand people showing up in a you know, three and four day program. You know Bob Proctor's a real good friend of mine. Mary Morris is a really good friend of mine. They're doing three and four and five thousand people in these live seminars, three and four day seminars, and there's they're holding people. I mean, they're actually keeping it sticky. So we, we collectively uh, in uh, in this kind of a domain are figuring out how to deliver content digitally. How to how to do it remotely and still maintain uh, the efficacy of the impact, and it, it's an experimentation for me right now. And so that when I go back to yeah, you know, what's the challenge? Yeah, how do I how do I stay relevant in a in a digital age when travel is actually not something that is a real viable option?
2: Your the fact that when your grandchild asked you about retirement and you hadn't even thought about it shows how obvious your passion is. What do you like best about what you do?
1: Ah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, hubris aside here, uh, I, I think I make a difference. Uh, I, see re, I see tangible results in the way that uh, people experience being at work. Um, I, I love to teach. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I really do. That, that's, if, if I had a, a label for, uh, yeah, if, 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 if who I was was a verb, I am a teacher. <laughs> I guess that would be one way to describe it. I'm a teacher. And I think that I've got good things to teach. I think I've got relevant things to teach. And it's not you know, on a dais speaking to somebody. That's not teaching. Teaching is an interaction. Teaching is a perturbation. Teaching is challenging things so that something else can bubble up. And that's, I think, what I do exquisitely well. I, I'm really good at, at bringing that to the, uh, the table.
2: Where can our folks go to learn more about you and the soul of business?
1: Well, the easiest site is going to be uh, BlaineBartlett.com. And there's all kinds of stuff on that uh, particular site. Uh, There's also a link to my company site uh, on BlaineBartlett.com. And the company is Avatar Resources um, and all of the regular social media. There's a Facebook uh, official Blaine Bartlett does the Facebook uh, handle and then LinkedIn. And uh, there's yeah, those, those would be the two primary ones.
2: Awesome. Well, this has been Seth Green for Sharkpreneur with a fascinating interview with Blaine Bartlett of BlaineBartlett.com and The Soul of Business. Blaine, thanks so much for joining us. Seth, it has been my absolute pleasure. Good to be here. Good to have you. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening, and we'll see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done?